Hello, this is the audio-only version of the Council on Future Conflicts. If you prefer video, please join us on the Future Conflicts channel on YouTube. If you'd like to watch the show live and participate in the chat, the show begins at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, as well as a special Saturday evening show at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, sharing our show with friends, and reviewing us on your podcasting app of choice. Now on with the show. Hey everybody, welcome. Welcome to a special episode of the Council on Future Conflict. This is the Future Conflict channel here on YouTube. My name is Scott and I am the proprietor of this hey everybody. Uh, welcome. gang welcome of uh, people. Of and so, uh, your conflict channel here. There we go. <laughs> you got to turn the YouTube off. It was Joe. <laughs> Um, okay, and so we've got a special episode today. Uh, the title of today's episode is South Africa on the Edge. Um, we're going to be talking with our guest here, Gideon, and uh, we are going to be diving into what happened in, in last year with all the uh, mess, um, and then also what what is going on in South Africa today, and then try to apply and extrapolate. As you know, we're all about the future conflict, so uh applying some of that stuff to you know the states and other places in the world and how this the, the same thing potentially could happen uh in other places so that's the kind of the bare bones of the show um we will also probably touch on some other things towards the end of the show a little more general topics as you guys know we always tend to start on something specific and then kind of scope outwards as the show goes along um, probably won't be getting to too much on uh, Ukraine today, though uh, seeing those uh, oil uh, storage facilities in Russia burn again, it was kind of interesting. Uh, and a couple other interesting developments like the SECDEF and the, and the Secretary of uh, State uh, meeting with Zelensky. So definitely a lot to talk about there. Uh, but for the most part, we're going to hold that tour till Wednesday. So we'll probably have a standard show on Wednesday uh, dealing with Ukraine and all things uh, future conflicts. So uh, let me get started. Uh, Gideon, why don't you introduce yourself and just kind of let the people know uh, what you're all about and and a little bit about yourself. I get, well, I'm going to say good morning, Scott, and everyone else, because that's that's times are where you guys are at and everyone well, else. It's, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night for me. I get rid of it. Right. So, so we're all, all <laughs> different different places um so my name is Gideon Hubert or Gideon Hubert depending on how you want to pronounce it I'm the owner and editor of an online South African forum like blog slash resource called uh, Paratus uh, which you can find at paratus.info I've been writing about gun rights since about 2012 2013 I was involved with a few of the farm ownership organizations NSA since then I still kind of am at the moment I'm full-time with an organization called Dear South Africa, and what we do is we facilitate all the public participation processes, well, not all of them, but the significant ones where uh, legislative amendments and new laws go for public comment as per the Constitution. We make sure that the public uh, are adequately informed what those new laws entail, how they would affect their daily life, and then allow them to literally click through and say whether they agree or disagree or accept or reject the proposal, which is part of the whole trans keeping governance transparent 
obviously the government hates it and hates what we do, which is why I love doing it. And uh, apart from that, I do a fair bit of firearm instructing on the side. And I also help out at a local gun shop in Somerset West uh, on the retail side. So that's pretty much me. And I, and I live in SA, which uh, comes with its own uh, pros and cons. Yeah, it's um, it can, it can be a, a a rough neighborhood over there, as they say, right? Yeah, I think we have the second highest homicide rate in the world for countries with populations over ten million. Uh, and if you count all countries, and you just correct for like outliers like the U.S. Virgin Islands and stuff like that, we have about the sixth highest homicide rate. We have an incredible, incredibly high rate of of sexual assault and rape. Uh, just from a violent confrontational crime point of view, it it, it is a complete mess, but it's also comes with an opportunity of the case of where civilians have pushed back before and where they have defended themselves, that is still a very effective way of of addressing it in your space, Uh, especially since policing in the country has fallen apart completely. And that's probably part of today's discussion is we'll dive a bit deeper into that dysfunction. Um, that's also why we have such a huge reliance on private security, uh, but it's not a, it's unfortunately not a guarantee, not, not the way it works. Expect to just get this from the ladies in the chat for the whole time. Ooh, I love the yeah. accent. Right. Uh, and you got some other fans. No, Jake. uh, Jake's, Jake's apparently a fan of, uh, of Gideon's. So he says, <laughs> Well, yeah. hi, Jake, and thank thank you for tuning in. I, I appreciate it. So just everybody, um, we are going to put all of the Gideon's details down in the description of the video. They're not there yet, but we'll have them probably either right after the show's over or uh, sometime during the show. We'll, we'll try to get that updated. So but links are in the chat. Good deal. Good deal. All right. So, Joe, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing well and good. Uh, it's uh, it's been a rainy uh, last 24 hours here, but but doing all right. Uh, I had a little little technical problems last night during a thunderstorm, but I think they're all worked out now. Well, I'm just I'm just trying. I'm just happy to see that uh, you and Mike have worked out your your difficulties that you were you know working out on Twitter. It was just oh, it's very uh, sad. We were just having a little fun. Well, I was. <laughs> Mike Mike wasn't. But I was. <laughs> Mike, can you can you can you believe Joe? I I, I find it hard to believe. I really do. Got stirred the pot. <clears throat> he hurt my feelings. Well, it's the it's the Army versus Marine thing. It will never die. Well, you know, jealousy does uh, kind of show itself in many many ways, uh, and we understand that. You know, it's okay. Uh, it's okay, Joe. It's okay. I'm Joe, I just raised feelings were hurt so easily. Well, I'm Joe, pretty sensitive. Joe, I just want to point out that Scott says it was an army versus uh, uh, army versus marine thing, but in, instead he points the, the the two of us at at the special uh, at at the non army guy, or well, I guess not not non army, but the guy who went on to do other things afterwards. Just saying, well, you know. It's... One, you know, once in a gang, you're always in the gang, you know. Uh, and, part of the tribe. Part of the tribe. And, and, and you know, and so it, it's an even match. That, you know, Gideon is kind of like a outlier. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, he can be the referee. So, uh. well, I'll, I'll do. I'll do my level best with the limited information. 
And unless you were a member of the South African Marines, and in that case, you, you know, <laughs> pipe down. No, yeah, no, my, my military background is zero. I just, I just act perfect. Like that. That's actually perfect, uh, Mike. Uh, so I, I've, I've been seeing your spicy memes on uh, the, your cigar memes. Uh, now that you've been sharing them with us, we, uh, we really appreciate that. Um, you know, y'all talk about me and drawn with crayons. Look at, look at Mike's memes. <laughs> I mean, a, those, those are highly skilled. Computer uh, art, caricatures, or something. Or other. I mean, they're really, really high level yeah. skill versions of those. I, 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 you I, I do like your selling them as NFTs. I mean, I, I, I was going to say, I, I, I do like your deft use of of MS Paint uh, to point out the difference between the the drone and the missile. You know, that was good. <laughs> a, a very, I have a very special technique. Um, <laughs> it's use, highly technical. You're very uh, special, all right. I am special. That's why I say they're special bombs. Uh, oh boy! You know, I really have. I've got it down. I mean, you can. It's you can barely even tell. <laughs> That's right. Oh no! I just I, I mean, they're actually perfect. You don't watch. You don't want memes to be too much better. Uh, you know, memes are are fun when they're crude. I think so. Uh, I think I've probably got that part down. <laughs> Um, Watcher, how are you doing this morning? I, you know, I'm doing fantastic. As Joe may have mentioned, uh, we had to get over 300 subscribers on on Joe's new tactical channel for for me to continue my work release and stay out of Turkish prison. And uh, and and here we are, almost at 400. So that that's that's good for another two weeks well, at least, and probably a pack of cigarettes. Can we watch a little clip of your new armored car? Uh, and this kind of is a great transition into our topic for today. Certainly, certainly. Now, Gideon, I'm sure you've seen this video like literally a thousand times. I think, yep, I have definitely. So, I mean, what are what are they dealing with in South Africa to where, like, I mean, are, I just guess we saw some video recently that just came out just the other day of another uh, uh, armored car robbery where all the the robbers got swacked uh, in their in their car. I mean, is it that bad? It's it's bad. I, I I'm gonna lie to you if I'm gonna try to give you the exact daily statistics, but we reached a point where we had multiple cash and transit heists on the same day, and for the most part, the, the two premier companies, which is Fidelity and G4S, they are the ones that get hit the hardest. They're also the ones that invest the least amount of money in training their personnel, adequately equipping them, or even paying them really. So. Mm-hmm. It's not much of a surprise that there's a, a lot of insider information implicated in how these things get done. And then you get the slightly more specialized companies like um, uh, SVB that spend a lot on getting their guys properly equipped and trained, as well as in this particular instance, I think they were in an escort vehicle uh, behind a, a truck transporting cell phones, which, I mean, we have cell phone stores getting robbed fool the the cell phones themselves wow and the the guys that pitch up to this are usually well coordinated gangs of four to eight sometimes more they've got full auto weapons like ak type rifles or the r4 series r5 series that they get from the government and they're quite aggressive and committed in in hitting their targets look in the most cases where there is a a 
proper fight back, they realize the juice isn't worth the squeeze and the, the um, enthusiasm fades quite fast. But um, you're not dealing with with people who are easily dissuaded and they, they're very, very much, they're trained, they're well-armed, they're well-equipped, they're well-coordinated and they're quite dangerous. Now, I had once heard that organized crime was almost, uh, it's almost entirely political as well. Is that is that true or is it is it a little more apolitical than what you see here? Like, because in America, there's no political affiliation when it comes to organized crime. Um, now, there's, def- there's definitely a political connection to it. We're just not 100% sure how, how deep it goes or how up it goes. But, I mean, there have been accusations leveled at, at ministers, at high-ranking politicians that, you know, they've got their fingers in, in, in pies with regards to organized crimes. I mean, we have a construction mafia that essentially go to construction sites and intimidate uh, the owners or, or rather the contractors there uh, if they don't pay protection money to to the local kingpin, which is almost always affiliated with some African National Congress, ANC uh, politician, either at mid-level or high level. The interesting thing with this is as the opportunities for organized crime become sort of with, with the economic downturn become less uh, prevalent, uh, the amount of political assassinations have equally ticked up. So I don't know if these are politicians taking each other out because they were getting involved in each other's turf, but we really do live. Well, South Africa is a gangster state in its current incarnation. There, there's no other way of, of, of putting it. Well, so what a, what a, one of the other YouTubers that I've followed pretty regularly is a uh, uh, Serpent ZA, you know, ZA, you know, he's, uh, he's, his focus is on China, but he's from originally from South Africa. And uh, he's, he's talked about, you know, uh, in some of his videos in the past, what South Africa's like. And, you know, he said that, you know, with when the ANC took over, he really described it as, um, you know, like, they literally went into power and they made all these people ministers that had nothing to do with that had no experience. And then they were all living in, in the lap of luxury, like overnight. So they go from being poor in these townships or whatever, wherever their political base originally was. And then when the new government came in, uh, I guess this was the nineties. Right. Um, and, like all That's of a sudden it. you had, yeah, you said you, you had all these people who had never had any money that were all of a sudden, you know, living in these big houses. And, you know, he said it was just, it was almost like, you know, like, uh, you know, a bunch of gangsters came into, or, you know, came into that, power of the entire country. That's an accurate description in the sense of you must also bear in mind that there were already different factions within the ANC prior to them. Uh, obtaining national government in 1994 uh, because they were exiled to different parts uh, of the world. Some were Eurocentric, some were in the UK. Others were uh, strong, strong, strong connections to Moscow and the Soviet Union, where others were closer to China and and others still, again, closer to Cuba. And a lot of them were not uh, compatible with each other. So you already had numerous factions within this organization that different ideas as to what they wanted to achieve. But the one thing they all had in common is not a single one of them knew how to competently govern a democratic state. And the fact that they were so poor at it from from the get-go and that they indulged in so much corruption 
almost immediately is is probably based on that not surprising at all i mean it's it's a hallmark of what they are they're a, a liberation an african liberation movement and probably the most incompetent one of them all because i i remember guys who saw action uh, on the border of angola and in the north of namibia against swapo saying that you know um plan which was the people's liberation army of namibia were extraordinarily motivated, highly dangerous, highly competent guerrilla fighters, and that they gave the SADF an extraordinarily hard time and were very dangerous and worthwhile adversaries. Whereas Mkonto we sees where MK, the armed wing of the ANC, uh, had a brief campaign, terror campaign in the north of the country by laying landmines in the agricultural area with the purposes of blowing up the white farmers. And they had to abandon this because they actually killed more of the black populace, uh, civilian populace, through this. This extraordinarily incompetent uh, guerrilla campaign. And, and that really just is a hallmark of what the ANC is. And as we sit and watch them today, they have no young talent. They have no new ideas. The top six in the party are nearly 70 years old, and that's as good as it's going to get. There's no succession for them. So it's, it's also a political movement that's busy dying. And dying quickly and as they're dying they're becoming more desperate more and more desperate to somehow cling to power that's slipping through their fingers which but, yeah that, that sounds a lot like what we have here in the states you know with you know a political party uh it, that has no future <laughs> i mean and the only the only young people that are involved are in, interested in old ideas from uh you know the the communist past of other countries so and and what an interesting connection here. It looks like in the late 90s, the ANC also took a really heavy neoliberal turn. So I, th I think, you know, our big topic that we, we want to kind of ground the first hour in is, is what happened last year. So why don't you set the stage for us? We've already kind of talked about um, the political landscape a little bit, but go, let's go ahead and flesh that out. So... I mean, you know, in the old days you had the, you know, the whites, but all whites aren't created equal. And then you had racial groups and then you've got political groups. And then, you know, because in America, people just think, oh, well, South Africa, the blacks and the whites and, and that's it. Right. Really simplistic. But, you know, like you were saying, there's even within the ANC, which is not the only black uh, political party, you have divisions within that party. So what. What are some of the other uh, major political parties and, and, you know, what are where are some of the kind of, uh, you know, bases of power that you see within the country? So the, the major issue with South Africa is it's, it's a country that's becoming increasingly apolitical and you can pick that up by ever increasing trends in voter apathy, as in every single national general election we have has fewer and fewer to people turning up to vote because they're that disillusioned with the political process and to be brutally honest i can't blame them because as awful as the anc is and it is there's there's i cannot think of a single good thing to say about them the official opposition has very much failed in convincing the majority of the country that they're uh, they're they're worth voting for. Now, the official opposition, and I say this in inverted commas because I don't know how you can count yourself as being official opposition if you barely have twenty percent of the of the total vote, are known as the Democratic Alliance, and they are a bizarre sort of animal themselves. They're uh, Western classical liberals 
but they've had an identity crisis for the past 10 years, as in they don't quite know what their principles are, and they seem to struggle finding something to champion. So um, they're liberal, but they weathercock with where they think the prevailing wind points them. And if you're looking for someone who's got stable principles and comes out hard and say, we believe in gun rights, we believe in property rights, we believe in this, they're the sort of party that say, oh, we believe in X, Y, Z, but, and there's always a but, and there's always a um, uh, an exit clause for them, which the only reason really they have as many votes as they have is they've proved to be competent governors. But when you compare them to their competition, that's not a that's not a major feat. And then you have a bunch of smaller parties. You have the Encarta Freedom Party, which is uh, a Zulu nationalist party whom I actually quite like. You have the Freedom Front Plus, which is the closest we have uh, of a conservative party. And they grew quite spectacularly in the previous election um, by appealing to people disillusioned with the DA, the Democratic Alliance. And then we have a whole whack of tiny parties all vying for what remains. And then obviously we have the EFF, the hardline Marxists, 10% of the, the, the total popular vote. Uh, abs they're nothing other than a violent group of thugs in red overalls that are masquerading as a political party. The center of who they are is race nationalism in the worst kind. Um, but they really just exist to uh, extract money for the for the leadership's pockets. Um, with regards to what happened last year, I think if one had to rewind a decade or two, what happened in the immediate aftermath of, of apartheid ending is you sat with an extraordinarily large segment of the population that had no respect for the rule of law because the agents of the rule of law were, were predominantly used as, as political tools by an, a, an oppressive administration. And this didn't sit well, obviously, with the majority of the of the populace. You didn't believe in the courts, the criminal justice system or law enforcement. The new so-called democratic government in 1994 did a terrible job at convincing the public that, um, you know, they the, the police are good and that the courts work primarily because they kept policing centralized. And this is going to be a theme that comes up later because that's a massive issue when you sit with a country like us that has 60 million people living here where it's slightly bigger than Texas. Uh, we have humongous regional law enforcement challenges that you cannot possibly centralize from a single office in Pretoria. We should have federalized policing ages ago and devolved it down to provincial, municipal, and almost county-level sheriff's departments. That would have had a much better impact if we did that as opposed to keeping a so-called uh, national South African police service uh, which has been incompetently run for the past 27 years and is almost teetering on the brink of uh, not existing anymore due to that level of mismanagement. So you had um, lack of respect for law and order and law enforcement. You had uh, incompetently managed and led law enforcement that's been bleeding talent and almost doesn't exist anymore for practical purposes. It's still there, but it's not effective at all. Uh, you have a corrupt government and you have a country that's in the longest sustained economic uh, downturn since World War II, uh, meaning that you've got more and more people getting poorer and poorer and more and more desperate, and they don't see a political solution, uh, and they are painted into a corner. Then you have this infighting in the ANC with Jacob Zuma, the former president, who stands accused of I don't know how many 
hundreds of, of uh, instances of corruption. He's supposed to go on trial. He was supposed to hand him over to the police. That didn't happen. This was shortly before the riots last year. He was then arrested and a group of very upset people used this as a rallying cry to start chaos, but that, that didn't propagate it. This what happened last year was not a, a Jacob Zuma thing. That was just the spark in this already rigged tinderbox filled with explosives. And it just cooked off and it cooked off for two weeks. Most like in the most spectacular fashion imagined until it ran out of momentum. Okay. So look, before we get into the details of that, um, anti-commie for $5, if, if there's a but and isn't big qualified, you ignore the statement prior. So I, I, I see you guys talking about that in the chat. I'm not quite sure exactly what that's referring to. Well, uh, earlier I think that's... you mentioned that the political parties uh, agreed with you and then said, but. And, and um, <clears throat> I can confirm that. So uh, for the last 20 something years, I've done an interview and interrogation. And anytime someone says, but in an interrogation, you erase the statement prior and only listen to what they say afterward. And uh, Antikami is right. Yeah. But but yeah, there I was just, a thing I... that Gideon brought up that I wanted to talk about um, the nationalization of police. Uh, ironically, here in America, there are those who want to go the other way. They want to make our local and county and, and state law enforcement agencies more accountable to the U.S. Department of Justice. And, and I think that's just a terrible mistake, because as you point out, um, policing somewhere like New York City or Detroit is not the same as policing in uh, in, in somewhere in rural Oklahoma. Right. Uh, they're just not the same animal. They're not the same creature. You, you, you can't use the same techniques. So it's a good point. Um, okay, so where to begin about last year? I mean, so you basically said it lasted two weeks and in, in the end, it just kind of burnt out, which that's not a, that's not what I would call hopeful because that means that it could just, you know, taken a breather since then and, and, and potentially it could spark back up again. So d was it organized? Was it, uh, targeted? Uh, or was it more spontaneous and and and, and more uh, um, organic? There, there was definitely a mixture mixture of both of those elements. There were definitely organized, targeted elements embedded in what happened last year, and uh, you, you could kind of see it from what sort of places were targeted, how they were targeted. But the overwhelming majority of it was just spontaneous, outright chaos and and explosively so. And it is a very good indicator of what happens. And, and I love Joe's acronym for this, W-R-O-L, without rule of law situation. It is, I think the most rational way to just describe what this, what this was is a total absence of any form of law and order, but not an enforced law and order presence like from police, a, a, a case where a large segment of society just outright rejected the existence of law, the existence of order, the existence of justice, and went full-blown predatorial and said, whatever I can take, I'm entitled to. 
and uh, I don't care who gets in my way or what the consequences are. It, it, it's on. And a great many of the people who committed these acts of violence, of looting and of arson weren't uh, destitute to the point that they were on the poverty line. Some of them, as you see, are being pulled over in, in quite like uh, middle class cars. And, uh, you know, they they organized with their friends to go TV shopping. So it's not a case of, you know, the hungry being so desperate that they are, are looting food to survive. Certainly, there were elements of that present, but but not overall. Now, and that is a direct they're just yeah. looking for a loaf of bread, man. I think you're wrong. They're just looking for a loaf of bread. It might yeah, be a that's... I don't know. Yeah, or, or the Nikes. <laughs> well, you know, I was really... So here on the video, we're seeing people basically got caught. They're t it looks like the police just made them unload their car, and then they would let them go. Uh I mean, I remember seeing video of the police doing the exact same thing, you know, loading their car up and, you know, and, and people actually, you know, calling them the police out for, you know, for for doing the looting as well. So it, it was a really kind of shocking scene when I saw that stuff. So the uh, real, quick, real, real quick, before you get started, I want to go ahead and get the super chat in. These super chats, uh, Gideon, you have to understand, I, you know, they're paying me to read what they say. So I feel obligated to. Now, I'm not going to interrupt your you, anything you say, but if Joe's talking, I'm going to shush him down so uh, I can get these super chats in. Right on. Well, Mike, too, but Mike never talks. And, you know, Watcher, he's, you know, he's Watcher. He's not the talker. Um. Uh, Saran uh, Concordia for 10 says off topic, but can we make fun of a young one in boot camp who called crying because there were so many stairs and no time to make my bed and roll call at 445? <laughs> well, so we certainly can, but, but this tells me how far boot camp has fallen because who gets to call home during boot camp? Once, right before graduation. Yeah, we had like at, at like the sixth week or something like that, we could start making phone calls. We had to make a phone call on day one to, you know, kind of proof of life. I'm here, mom, blah, blah, blah. You yep. got like you yeah, know, yeah. two minutes and then and then, you know, but yeah, that's uh, worthy of worthy of uh, of disdain. Um, all right. So I'm sorry, you were, Gideon, you were saying. So uh, on that video, actually, uh, slightly earlier, there was the footages of a security sort of armored car and guys standing in the street. Mm. Um, and that was actually near Reservoir Hills, where one of my friends were, were staying. And that was right at the entrance to their neighborhood where they, for the, the space of, of a full week, actually, the community fended off uh, violent looters gaining access to a, a residential neighborhood. Um, the law enforcement response was, for the most part, non-existent. There were a whole bunch of harrowing stories about um, a, a small group of, of uh, policemen off-duty, one of which I personally know, and a handful of civilians defending the Westville Hospital from being overrun by what they estimated to be 2,000 uh, looters, and they had to hold the line uh, 10 people armed with AR-15s that they licensed for sport shooting, and a couple of handguns and shotguns uh, defending the hospital because there was no other law enforcement response available. And entire communities just left to fend for themselves because there was no law enforcement response. And not, it not only got, that wasn't the only side to it. The police ran out of ammunition and begged mm. licensed gun owners for, for spare ammo. 
which they then would give them because everyone's got a reloading press at home and you would just reload more for yourself. Um, but it got outright desperate. And, um, and there Joe were some was... unlikely heroes in these stories, like the, the taxi associations actually bonded together with, with the, the local neighborhood watches to, to protect infrastructure neighborhoods. So it's, uh, it, it, was, it was pandemonium. And there were good stories and there were terrible stories as part of it. Speaking you know, of partnerships about this event and 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 the fact that that as a gun owner, so when 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 the without rule of law situation happened and the police call you and you're like, hey, I know you got a lot of ammo and we need some, a lot of people here in America might be tended to say no, but um, remember, in two weeks when you're surrounded and you need the police to help you, they're going to remember that no, so you need to think about that ahead of time, and I'm just going to be honest and say I don't think that guy ever got in that armored vehicle. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah. like <laughs> oh, tiny. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo I like how he talks about how he's, uh, so some of us haven't slept for two days. Oh, it's right here. Well, he certainly ate. <laughs> we can't hear it. By yeah. The way. Well, oh, oops. Well, uh, well, he definitely wasn't skipping meals. That's, yeah. uh, that's all. <laughs> well, so tell, tell, tell us a little bit about some of those some of the stories of people banding together. I mean, the thing that I, that it was very encouraging to me is that it was very diverse groups of people that were banding together. It wasn't, uh, there were no kind of, I, I didn't feel like there were any racial lines, uh, in, in those groups that I saw. Um, you know, you could argue that there were some racial lines on the opposite side of the people doing the looting, but ultimately, you know, I'm not worried about what those people are doing. I'm worried about what, you know, when people put put aside, you know, differences in order to come together to do something hard. So can you kind of just speak to that a little bit? There was definite no, how shall we say, there, there was no racial homogene, homogeneity. Is that the right way to pronounce it? Uh, among the people who are actually defending their neighborhoods. And one of my favorite stories is there was a, a, a black township as an informal settlement that their local shops and stores were all looted and burned to the ground. And the residents of that township then went to the more affluent white neighborhood next door and said to them, listen, uh, we're here to help you protect your mall and your, your, your shops, because if these places burn, we have nowhere to go to buy food and, and we're essentially done for. So that was a case of uh, very rational cooperation between two groups who are not only racially very different, but from very different socioeconomic backgrounds as well. Uh, across Durban itself, I mean, you had uh, the Indian South Africans, you had uh, uh -huh. the white South Africans, and you had uh, black Zulus all banding together to pr protect private property, protect businesses and protect homes and lives, because it was generally a situation where if these communities didn't organize along uh, the lines they did, there would have been a lot of dead people without a shadow of doubt in my mind. And there was a strike earlier this year at a uh, milk factory, the Clover Milk Factory, where violent workers going on strike actually murdered, very brutally murdered a bunch of security guards. And I used that as an example and said, people forget that this exact same element was present in the violence last year. And the only reason you didn't see people literally beaten to death in the street with rocks and have their skulls bludgeoned in is because there were people who banded together and they 
forcefully prevented this from happening. And if they were not there or they were incapable of doing it, it would have been an utter bloodbath. And that's something I point out a lot is that the civilian self-defense groups are what held South Africa together during that crisis. Uh, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Without a, a shadow of a doubt that that's exactly what, what happened. And a big part of that is the fact that due to our incredibly extensive and prolific violent crime problem, civilians already had structures in place, community policing forums, neighborhood watches, which you could probably refer to in, in America as a mutual assistance group of mm -hmm. sorts, then sprouted forth from these already existing structures because the neighborhood watch was never designed to actually mobilize to this extent. It wasn't designed to distribute food to people going angry, medicines to people who were stuck in their homes and couldn't leave because the, the rioters were burning down their pharmacy or, or they prevented them from getting to hospital. So they started not only a, a eyes and ears security function, they actually became a hard line of physical security. They rendered medical aid, they rendered food aid, they organized internally and started cooperating with other neighborhood watches from adjoining areas. So they they linked th those chains up uh, and formed an almost impenetrable wall for most cases, and they shared resources, intelligence. It very quickly, a very simple, small neighborhood organization became a very, very complex organization with complex forward and backward linkages and entire logistics structure behind it. None of that was intentional when these things were formed. And I think a lot of significant lessons were learned from that as to how do you take those structures and take them forward? Because I can promise you this is going to happen again. There, this was the first major blowout. I want to it tell will... you that's a perfect opportunity for me to point out that this book tells you how to do that right here <laughs> and can i be honest as someone that that ha had to think long and critically about these events prior to reading your book the moment i picked it up and opened it i was like joe knows what he's talking about i love the way you worded it so i can already give you an endorsement here as someone that hasn't gotten through it through all of them entirely um i've, I've got nothing um i can contradict you on it's all sensible stuff well, you know, Very the honest. interesting thing, the Thanks. interesting thing about it is, is that, you know, and this is what I love to hear most uh, is, and Joe, I mean, I'll let you talk about this a little bit is, you know, because your books kind of do speak to this, but exactly what you're talking about, Gideon, is these kind of grassroots organizations that are very, very local, very kind of pragmatic in their focus, you know, they focus on the people who are close to you versus the people, you know, it's not like all these disparate political connections. It's literally like the people in this neighborhood and the stores down the street and the people in a, maybe a neighborhood on the other side of the stores. And maybe they have, they would vote differently in elections, but ultimately they all shop at the same shops and they all shop at, they go to the same gas station. And so like this guy here with the shotgun guarding the gas station, you know, it becomes a pragmatic thing versus some esoteric political idea that people are banding around. And, you know, I mean, Joe, I, mean, I don't know if you want to kind of talk a little bit about that and the whole idea of mutual aid organizations. And yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. So the, the key thing is, is that what South Africa last year taught us, and, and I talked about a lot on my blog, is that you need to come up with these ideas now. They had to do it on the fly and they did a very creditable job of it. 
but how much better would it have been had these organizations already been in place, right? Uh, neighbors defending neighbors, banding together. Um, that only comes from experience together, right? And, and they'll be so much better the next time. So you need to come up with some sort of organization. And, and, and my books has a great way to start. Another great book on this is, uh, it's a bit pricey, but it's called The Civil Defense Manual. And it's written by Jack Lawson, uh, who, who fought on the South African side in the Bush War. His wife is a South African, uh, and, and he lived in the region for a long time. He's an American, but it's a, it's a great book um, where he, he really gets into detail on it, uh, of his neighborhood protection unit, which is kind of what I've, what I've come up with, too. Uh, you got to get to know people. You've got to organize them. And then like Gideon said, it's OK. So I've got my neighborhood group, but I need to know about the next neighborhood over and then the one beyond them, because while I might be defending my neighborhood, isn't it better for all three neighborhoods, uh, you know, one on each side of me and us for us to go down to the next main intersection and maybe run that checkpoint that we saw in the video? And in order to do that, we've got to all already know each other and know uh, kind of the same things to go and run that checkpoint that keeps people out of our neighborhood. And that's where in these types of conflicts that are coming, despite what everyone might think, um, you're going to need to do that, right? You're going to need to get out there and do that now and get ahead of it. And really um, a great book for what Gideon was just talking about is my, my, my little half book here. This is actually just a notebook. It really is just a place for writing down all of your plans and organizing things. And you could put down the names and contacts of the neighborhood groups around you and stuff like that. So you really um, you really have to do that right now, getting ahead of things um, and, and, and get on there. And I know somebody just mentioned in here is every third member will be an FBI informant. Uh, in all of my books, I talk about how to defeat the FBI informant who tries to get in your group because they will. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that people shouldn't have to worry about the FBI in a mutual aid association at a local level because you're not focused on the. Like I said, I think that it's very important that these local groups focus on local issues um, versus, you know, some sort of larger political type of thing. I mean, you know, if you keep it very simple, like, you know, right to keep and bear arms, freedom of speech, things like that, and, and that's as political as you get. I mean, I hate to say it in this day and age that being pro-First Amendment, pro-Second Amendment is political, but I guess it, it can be. Anyway, so, you know, Gideon, what I want to talk to you about is, um, so, so, what, so you kind of, you were talking about how these, these groups kind of formed uh, leading up to this, so they were already in existence, so these, these weren't kind of ad hoc things that had to have been put together on the fly, um, so they already existed, and after about two weeks or so, it all kind of died down. So in the immediate aftermath, what was kind of, I mean, clearly there was a collective sigh of relief that everybody seemed to be going back to their homes and, and okay, we're not going to devolve into Mad Max style, you know, uh, craziness. But there had to have been a like, okay, well, what next? Because as bad as it was yesterday, it can always get worse, right? So what was the kind of thought process in the immediate aftermath of this uh, situation? So the immediate aftermath has everyone that hasn't been paying attention to what's been going on around them, which unfortunately included the overwhelming majority of the population, was in a state of like paralytic shock. And maybe just to clarify, the, the structures and organizations did exist, but they had a very, very different purpose for their existence, as in they were just neighborhood watchers and CPFs, mm -hmm. and they were concerned with 
the crime situation in their neighborhood and addressing that directly. They were in no way, shape or form geared for, for this level of upheaval. And they very quickly and on the fly had to tack additional things on and organize themselves far more efficiently. And for the most part, they did that very well. But Joe makes a great point. If people had taken preparedness for unexpected, let's call it disasters or events or incidents much more seriously, then the response to, to this particular one would have been far better coordinated, more disciplined and less hectic. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. In, two, two, in about two weeks' time, the riots burnt out. Um, they met incredibly hard opposition in Soweto, the main black township uh, southeast of Johannesburg, sorry, southwest of Johannesburg, uh, by the residents there who took up arms. Uh, we're talking about AK-type rifles, handguns, plate carriers, AR-15s, protected them all and said anyone who, who even comes within a block of this place with the intention of looting will be shot on site. So they took an incredibly hard line and squashed it before it could become an issue. Uh, in Durban, it unfortunately had already flared up badly, as well as Peter Marisburg, just to the west of Durban. And the authorities and the residents had to scramble. But in the aftermath of it, and I've got it on great, good authority, that if this thing lasted another week, that would have been pretty much the end. Uh, it would have been uh, an entire metro irrecoverably torched, and there would have been nothing left. Uh, because no matter how well organized your structures are at some point the civilians were going to run out of steam you can only lose so many nights of sleep you can only stay away from your job for so long and you could only rely on on your emergency stores for so long until things start becoming depleted and the situation becoming really desperate i would rather not think of what the next rational steps for beyond that would have been but in the aftermath there was a great upsurge suddenly in personal safety, personal security, organizing resilient community structures, making yourself, your family, your community uh, government proof, so to speak, that you have independent electricity, you have uh, potable water provision, that you have firearms, ammunition, the skills, physical fitness. And unfortunately, as things tend to go, as the embers of this thing cooled off and the smoke cleared, a few weeks or months later, the enthusiasm to be prepared also uh, waned as a result of it and unfortunately not a lot of people took the preparation seriously and I'm afraid to say if this had to come to a head again um, I, I don't think it would go down all that much more differently than it previously did I hope I'm wrong though hey Gideon um, I stepped out for a second so maybe I missed it but how did uh, the South African press treat this whole thing they treated it uh, schizophrenically, which is unfortunately the way they treat most things. Uh, first off, they tried politicizing it, and they wanted to blame the whole thing on uh, former President Jacob Zuma and his family and his supporters, and then the ANC faction they very vehemently dislike. Now, bear in mind, uh, the man is very much a criminal. He's very much a scumbag, uh, and he has no regard for the rule of law or anything like that but he, neither he nor his sycophants are capable of orchestrating something this big and assigning the majority of the blame to him is just idiotic and inaccurate the other thing that they did is they initially started fishing for a racial angle on it especially in phoenix where there was 
uh, a bit of a tussle between the Indian residents there and and um, black rioters from a neighboring uh, community, which was, you know, a storm in a teacup, really. It, was, it, it wasn't newsworthy at all, but th that got disproportionate focus. And then a lot of navel gazing as well as, you know, how, how did this happen? How, no one could see it coming. And you go, lots of people could see this coming. Uh, it's just a case of you didn't want to acknowledge the reality of the situation. And that one thing was bear in mind of the media in South Africa is it's uh, an internationally owned media conglomerates and media houses. They like imposing a very Western, liberal Western view on domestic politics, which African politics are very different to politics in the West. It's a, it's a vastly different creature and it doesn't work the same. L looking at this rainbow nation dream that had, that literally went up in flames for the way they viewed it is something that they haven't quite been able to reconcile. What they don't want to acknowledge, though, is that white, black, colored Indian all stood together in order to f directly confront these rioters, these looters. That is your so-called rainbow nation moment, if you have to call it that. But because that that doesn't fit their their lens they don't want to acknowledge it and they begrudgingly wrote about it and they begrudgingly acknowledge that maybe the crazy gunnuts were right all along and they begrudgingly acknowledge that perhaps there are different fault lines and fractures in south african society than that they've been advertising to us in the, the outside world but ultimately if you wanted accurate reporting on this you weren't going to get it from the mainstream corporate media no way Sorry, it's a very long-winded way for me to, to say that. Did, so did you have some of the um, maybe online YouTube kind of social media people covering, you know, independent, you know, on-the-ground type people that were doing good coverage? There, there were two ones that stand out to me. The one is a, a, a Zulu guy called Sishle Ngobise. His channel is called Big Daddy Liberty. Um, he's he's one of my favorite YouTubers to follow with regards to um, yeah, I think that's him. Let me tell you if it is. Yep, that's the man. He did great analysis. He was he was on the ground there. He was interviewing people. Um, he, he's a brave guy and and he knows what he's doing. And he's a, he's a good close personal friend. And another guy that had fantastic independent analysis is a chap called Roman Kabanak, and he runs a, a channel called Morning Shot. Um, which let's see if it pops up. Yep. That's it. That's morning shot. And he did a great, great talk about it. He's also a solid gun guy, although he doesn't advertise it. He is so yeah. Way to dox him. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is, is that, you know, I expect that, I, you know, you got you essentially have two type or three types of people, right? You've got well four, I guess. So you've got the sheep, and you got the goats, and then you've got the wolves, and you've got the sheepdogs, right? And so, I would say, to a greater or lesser extent, many of us in this panel probably either fall into the sheepdog or the goat category. The goat are the people who can kind of live on their own and. And they'll be they'll be fine, uh, but they could always be prey to to wolves. 
the sheep, of course, are uh, all the city liver, living people who, if they don't have the farmer and the sheepdog there to, to take care of them, they will die. Uh, the sheepdogs, of course, are the people willing to kind of protect their community, and the wolves, finally, are the ones who are out there preying on the weak. Um, so... Yeah, ideally, we want our society to be very goat-like, right? You know, you don't have to be—you don't have to be a shooter. You just have to be ready to take care of yourself. Um, but, but that being said, like you said, that once once it died down, once a month passed by and nothing else happened, oh well, I can go back to living my life the way I can stop going. I can ca cash in my gym membership. I don't have to buy that gun that I was thinking about. I don't have to get all the food preps that, that my, uh, my, you know, my, my, my neighbor was telling me I should buy. Right. I, so a lot of people did backslide, but did any organizations kind of come out or it's networks kind of develop because of what happened last year that strengthened some of the people who were already thinking about, uh, preparation. And so then now there's a kind of a little more strength to that network. Definitely. There, there are some really good stories in that. And, and a lot of it is not published because it happens really down low at local level. Right. Um, there were quite a few joint police operations with civilians, civilian volunteers who weren't deputized. They weren't given uniforms. They were literally just given a reflector jacket uh, and a gun and said, you know, we need you to deal with the so-called illegal minor problem. It's It's a bunch of very violent guys with AKs who raid the old disused mines and they're, um, they tend to shoot anyone in their territory on site and are a real sort of hazard. There were quite a few operations in, in Johannesburg and Gauteng earlier this year uh, where that type of joint op happened because a lot of local police commanders, and we're not talking about higher up, we're talking about station commanders or cluster commanders, have said, you know what, we actually need civilian help. We, we don't have the resources, the skills, the manpower to actually even do basic operations anymore, like um, proactive crime prevention or interception operations. And that's something that was almost violently resisted by police management. They wanted nothing to do with asking for civilian help. Now there's a case of the president making remarks about a month ago where he said, you know, looking at closer regulation of the South African security industry. Whenever I, I, I see the president talk about further regulation, go, oh, great. So you want to pull its teeth more. But one of the positive spin-offs from it is essentially uh, getting a formal agreement with private security supplementing law enforcement resources in times of, of crisis like this. Now, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. I don't really enjoy a uh, sort of tyrannical autocratic government um, having access to more sort of boots to put on people's faces. But at the same time, something does have to be done in the event of large scale chaos like this erupting again, which it inevitably will. So there's been small scale improvements. There's been mid and large scale improvements. There's been deeper cooperation, whether or not it's going to be enough, whether or not, or not it's being structured the correct way, I can't tell you. And the proof in the pudding might be in the eating when, when the inevitable next instant of crisis hits. Okay, so now take us forward to maybe the last the last few months. 
Um, what's it like on the ground now there? What's, I mean, have you had anything developed that makes you think that, you know, that, I mean, so this was like the winter for you guys, right? When this happened. That was, and what we've had now is we actually had a, a major weather system hit Durban and KZN again, causing the most catastrophic flooding since 1983, I think that killed several hundred people. It caused extent, it caused extensive amounts of damage. Um, it was a proper natural disaster. And again, in the wake of this, we had private charities that organized a better disaster response than government authorities did, who were for the most part completely overwhelmed. And a lot of, of what happened with this natural disaster and the, the extensiveness of the damage wasn't because the storm was particularly horrendous. I mean, it was, but state government infrastructure pertaining to roads, rail, dams, entire dams that broke, um, those that public infrastructure wasn't maintained for decades. And it just took one slight natural disaster to turn it into a major natural natural disaster as these things just failed one after the other. And as I mentioned, the emergency response was inadequate, if not entirely absent. So what we've actually seen from July last year is the government's ability to respond to sudden catastrophic events has not only not improved, it's probably gotten worse. Uh, less competent, less cohesive, uh, and less well-resourced. So if ever people needed a wake-up call that they really are on their own in this country, this this should be the second one. And I don't think you're going to get a third one because the third one would probably be, um, then it's too late. So is, is there any kind of projection that you see of like anything that's in that's developing, whether it's a problem with the government response to these floods or whether it's, you know, underlying tensions in, in the, just the fabric of the, of the country. Is there anything that could, that you could see here in the next, you know, three or four months that might lead to another uh, crisis like we saw last summer? I do, but I also have to uh, remind me to just give you the good news after the bad news, because otherwise yeah. it becomes a very depressing topic. And all I'm telling you is, you know, how much of a total cluster like the entire situation is. That, um, we are the, not a doom, we are not a black pill doom pill uh, channel. We yes. we we definitely look at the uh, the reality yes, on the ground, are. but some sometimes the reality can be improving. So, look, I the reality the reality sucks and it's harsh. But I'm a bit of an anarchist accelerationist, and I believe that things need to get really really bad. Not because I want anything to end horribly, but because I think the critical mass of acceptance that we need a 180 degree opposite direction appraisal of how we govern ourselves and how we take personal responsibility for ourselves our communities and our futures that will only happen when this myth of big daddy government uh, that is the provider of all is properly dispelled and, and that is a major problem south africa has is we we rely far too much on a government uh, that's a parent figure, but it's the bad parent figure. It's the alcoholic, abusive, molesting father figure. It is definitely not a loving, responsible parent. And we have this infantilized population. Now, um, going forward, we have a major general election coming up in 2024. Uh, at the end of this year in December is the ANC's elective conference where they pick their leaders and, and who will be running for president then. 
And it's such a divided political party with so much political assassination that's ramping up into this. There is so much opportunity for total chaos to erupt as a result of the process or outcomes of any of these events, of the, the ANC conference, of the general election that's coming up and everything in between, um, because we're seeing a government that is losing its grip on power. It doesn't know how to deal with it. And it is incredibly paranoid, incredibly narcissistic, uh, very arrogant and very stupid and very violent. On the positive side of it, due to the government's failure in so many sectors, we've seen a lot of private sector initiatives, whether it's community-based or much larger, that have built parallel institutions that are providing services and, and, and getting things done that's essentially making the government irrelevant. I mean, AfriForum is a great example of it. They, they built the first private university in South Africa with donor money, and they built it under budget and ahead of schedule. They have instituted an entire private prosecutions network where they have uh, incredibly talented legal minds who are going, great, the National Prosecuting Authority are not actually prosecuting criminals and sending them to prison. We're going to identify cases that we know we know are prosecutable and we're just going to prosecute them privately and send people to prison. So they've, they've been doing the NPA's job for them in that regard as well. There are numerous other institutions that are doing similar things and you have these, there's no umbrella for them. They cooperate with each other as, as they have a common goal and they do their own thing as they deem necessary. And it's all very organic and holistic in its own way. It, it, it does prove that if you leave people alone to govern themselves, they make a plan, even under the most hostile circumstances, and they still get stuff done. They really do. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it sounds like it's almost kind of like a de-linking de of actual society from you know, a, a government that is so inwardly focused that they don't even realize that the, the society has moved on without them. Yeah. And, and again, it's that, that proof that self-sufficiency is better, right? Uh, we don't need to wait for someone else to do it. We can take it on and handle it ourselves and get it done better, cheaper, and faster. That's exactly it. And, um, you know... <laughs> Uh, we have we have cases where I mean AfriForum is predominantly an, an Afrikaner based organization, but because it makes rational sense to help other communities that aren't Afrikaners, uh, they've done so numerous times because it's um, you know it is the way charity works, and it's also a case of it creates networks, it creates stability, it it serves the goal of improving the situation uh, for their members as well as for everybody else. And that sort of rational voluntarism is, is where I'd like to see South Africa to head. Um, the major roadblock for that outcome is the existence of the ANC, who um, is, is really a cancer on the country, although our entire political class and entire political system really is part of the problem. So um, I, I want to pull uh, pull a little bit away from what uh, what happened last year um, and kind of maybe revisit some old ground. So I, I think it was like three years ago the, the the whole issue of the farm murders became a big kind of 
topic here in the states. Uh, there's a couple documentaries. I think Lauren Southern did one, and and there were some others that really focused on you know uh, the problem of racially motivated uh, attacks on farms. The, it talked about the um, I, I forgot the the party the the ones that are like actively. Um, seeking to go out and seize farmland from the EFF, from the EFF, right? And um, and it also talked about the what is it the 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 Sudlander organization? You know, that's the kind of the mutual aid society for for you know rural whites or whatever to kind of and you know some of the coverage I saw kind of painted them as bumbling uh, people who. You know, oh, they're worried about something that's never going to happen. You know that type of thing. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think that's, I think it's a little more than that. So I was hoping maybe you could kind of update us on is this a still a big problem there, or you know, how is all that kind of attention that the world gave those, uh, gave that? How has that kind of affected the reality there on the ground? Hey, can can I add a corollary to that? I guess. Um, with, with the with the last uh, you know incidents, um, clearly there's a correlation. But uh, you know these these groups banding together is a common denominator of all that. They were property owners versus you know non-property owners. In other words, was it not just solely racial you know divide? Was it a property versus non-property owner? And all these things. To answer that one first, there's definitely a, a line like that property owner versus non-property owner, but also a, a stakeholder versus non-stakeholder element, because a great number of those who supported um, the farmers' right to own their land and stuff like that are um, farm workers, as well as, as the, the, the black farming community or black communities in the agricultural area that derive their their livelihoods from the existence of of these farming activities in the sense of they might not be owning these farms or have ownership stakes in them but they're big time stakeholders in that process and they certainly don't want to see it uh, interrupted or go south or, or um, be destroyed and the farm attack situation definitely is still an issue um the dynamics at play behind it, there being a racial element, a, a political element. But I still think the biggest single element there is is the fact that uh, the cr criminal element. If you look at the, the scale of violence of crime that, that happens within the black community and you compare it to the violence that, that happens to white farmers, it's, it's very similar. And in the sense of once you think about it, you've got people who are isolated they're usually elderly, they're very easy victims, and you unleash some of the most psychotic sadists on them that have absolutely no respect for life uh, or, or the rights of other people, and they actually derive enjoyment from, from their uh, sadism, then this is the sort of thing you get. And it doesn't help that in many cases, these farm attackers are well coordinated and relatively well resourced, and um, they're outright ruthless. That said, there are a great many communities, farming communities that have created their own security structures privately. And the ones that have done that have had massive success in not only uh, 
nailing these guys when they attack a farm, but also preventing farm attacks through clever use of intelligence gathering, close cooperation with law enforcement, and of course, running their own operations with within the you know restrictions of the laws as much as, as applies to civilians. So there's been a great many good things that happened. With regards to the Saitlan, there's now I don't know them personally very well, but I do know that if you wanted a South African version of a Fed infiltrated organization, <laughs> they're pretty much as close to it as you get. So I would not <laughs> recommend anyone consider membership lightly. Um, if you could also excuse me for 60 seconds, I just need to plug my charger into this thing before it dies. Um, yeah, yeah, go for it. I didn't plan this very well. One moment. Uh, Ron, how are you doing this morning? Nice. I'm glad you're able to join us. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, thank you. It's um, <laughs> still have some more snow clearing to do later on this morning. I guess the snowblower is pretty much uh, mandatory where you're at, huh? Yep. Yep. In fact, we have two of them, but the snow was wet and heavy, so it was um, unable to really uh, do a, a lot, especially going up the driveway. So, uh, uh, so well, I the thing you have here is uh, I pay neighborhood kids. <laughs> well, I, I I have a neighbor with a backhoe and uh, and a ah. front lo front end loader. Nice, <laughs> it works nice. It works really quick. There you go. There you go. Oh boy! So uh, Ryan, they call, they call that self-sufficiency, Joe. <laughs> See, Mike, I, I was willing to just bury the hatchet and let it roll. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> uh, never, Ron. I don't know how much of that you've been listening to, but uh, so far we've had a really great talk with uh, Gideon here. I've, I've bits and pieces, but yeah, it's uh, it's very, very interesting, very intriguing. Um, What's your background with South Africa, if any? Uh, I uh, I studied it um, a lot. Well, not a lot, but somewhat in um, in college. In, in it, um, I have one one shelf of books dedicated to <clears throat> excuse me South African history and the current events. Uh, you know the apartheid era, <clears throat> the. Uh, the Mandela movement, you know, Cecil Rhodes, the Boer War, you know, the the settlement, the the whole. Th so, I, kind of a, a good basic round ground all around grounding of, uh, of what South Africa is. Plus, I can answer the question: you know, who's buried in Grant's tomb, and where is South Africa located? So, I I think I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, those are those are two 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 tough ones that uh, I, I've actually seen people get wrong. So. Uh, Gideon, I'd like to introduce you to Ron. He, uh, he's our uh, local curmudgeon and uh, former CIA paramilitary officer. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, when people say that we're uh, we're shilling for the CIA or we've been infiltrated by the CIA, uh, we just go like, well, duh, we announce it every episode that Ron's on with. I mean, so it's not like... Uh, it's not like we're making a secret of it. Well, good to meet you, Ron. And uh, also, uh, this is my, this is the first CIA person I've ever met in my life. Well, that I know of. That's, you know, that's, right. that's the key that you know of. Well, the, the you know the thing I the thing I like if you if you listen to people in all these foreign countries about who's CIA and who's not, you'd think the CIA, Ron, I think would have had to have had like about two hundred thousand active members at any given time uh, in order for all these people to be CIA out there now. Who knows? You never know who's on the payroll, though. Well, you know, everybody either wants to be a Navy SEAL or a CIA officer. Well, there is that. 
Um, all right, so let's um, so let's look a little wider. Um, you know, South Africa is in a pretty messy neighborhood. You know, um, even ISIS is actually kind of getting down into uh, your neck of the woods. Uh, I think they're down in Mozambique now. Uh, and, they're actually and... here. They 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 have. Uh, identified and known, I believe, training camps and facilities in South Africa already. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, everyone kind of just talks about it at a tangent. No one really addresses it straight up. So I'm pretty sure the U.S. Is, knows exactly where these things are and are keeping an eye on them. But, um, yeah, Mozambique is where it's getting hot in the north in Cabo Delgado or Cabo Delgado, however you pronounce it, where they actually have a a bunch of militants causing proper proper chaos um i think they're called answer al suna or something like that mm. yeah i you know it's it's just amazing how virulent the idea of that isis has been able to to spread throughout africa i'm really just surprised how it's kind of taken hold i mean i think part of it is is that you were talking about, you know, the level of incompetence of some other uh, African liberation governments and things. I think that, you know, there is just a, a general level of competence in Africa for governance because of corruption and because of various reasons that just, you know, it's a little lower, the lower bar in Africa. Uh, and I, I think a lot of these countries are really struggling against uh, organized resistance from a from a, you know, well, what what is a, a very resilient enemy. I mean, uh, we're still dealing with uh, ISIS in and around. There was a there was a gunfight right on the Jordanian border with with Iraq the other day, um, with several people killed, and uh, you know, so ISIS is definitely a problem. And you know, are are there any other kind of security risks that are you know maybe terrorist based or uh, in South Africa that are kind of separate from what we've talked about already? So there definitely is a risk of terrorism here. Uh, why exactly that hasn't manifested in something overtly identifiable yet is I'm, I'm not sure of. We do have a surge in kidnappings that were poorly reported. The media's kind of started reporting uh, on them right now. And they they are not entirely restricted, but they, a lot of the high-profile ones are, are happening in communities where specific individuals are associated with potential terrorist links um so i it's a topic i'm not properly acquainted with but i know it exists and i know there there, there is certainly a threat to it and i also know that the state security agency is very concerned about it they're, they're very deeply worried about this thing uh whether or not they have the capacity to act on it i don't know that they, they haven't acted on it, as far as I'm aware, not not at a large scale. So one worries: are elements of the government in bed with them, or are they just terrified of taking action because they know if they did bring upon sort of retaliatory attacks, they wouldn't have the capacity to deal with it. Yeah, you know, I would imagine you have um, connections within the security service and maybe military or or whatnot, or at least with members who are, are recent you know, graduates of the security service, if you will, um, like uh, like most of us are from from our military or government service jobs. W what is the viewpoint of the people who are actually on the ground and kind of doing 
the work of security in South Africa? I mean, you know, what's their feeling? Is it is it is it salvageable or is it just a steady decline until finally you guys find the cliff and fall off of it? It's an interesting one because my my question is: we've been told the cliff is coming for thirty years, and and you know, I'm not I'm not saying that that was a ridiculous thing to say. I think I think there is a cliff. I just don't know what exactly it looks like and what's at the bottom of it. Uh, the worst scenario for the country, probably in its whole, is a, is a is a type of breakup of Yugoslavia, ethnic cleansing, civil war, where all bets are off and it's just blood in the streets and uh, just outright um, mayhem and pandemonium for, for years. The, a breakup of, of the country into independent smaller states is possible. Whether or, not, whether or not it would go about that chaotically, I don't know, because the required level of racial tension doesn't, in my opinion, and I might be horribly wrong, but in my opinion, doesn't exist for for that sort of ethnic conflict to to occur because what makes it more complicated and that's probably a good thing is the fact that there isn't a black and a white race here the 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 black south africans are subdivided into about 11 different tribes most of them uh can't stand each other and there is this precarious sort of balance between them and not a single one of them has enough power to really wield um, the scepter of authority without cooperation of everybody else. Uh, within the white community, you have the Afrikaners, you have the English, but there are disparate views within those communities on almost everything. They say if you have two Afrikaners uh, in the same town, you'll have three different churches and uh, <laughs> two different golf clubs. So it's that's also who, who we tend to be. And then, of course, you have the element of the Indian South Africans and uh, the, the the colored South Africans. And I think we had this chat offline that that, that C word isn't a slur. It's actually a legitimate cultural identity in um, in South Africa. So that's the worst case scenario. The, the best case scenario for me would be a, a an organized sort of federalization, smaller government. I'd prefer no government, but smaller government. No, no powerful central government in Pretoria and communities taking ownership of, of their own uh, destinies. The problem with that is, is that something that hasn't happened in South Africa before, definitely not in its recent history. And getting there is not going to be a journey without pain. So I think politically, we're going to be on a different trajectory after 2024. It might be a lot better. Or if it's an ANC-EFF alliance, it might first get quite a bit worse before it gets better. But there's definitely, I don't think, a turnaround to the slow decline. We've lost too much infrastructure and we don't have the gold reserves to build them back up. We can't mine. We've depleted the gold reefs. So if we take a loan from China, I don't think things are going to improve much. We've seen what the Chinese do in Africa. We see how they run the show. Yeah, that, I, it's funny you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question. Um, you know, we've seen China come in, you know, and building infrastructure and basically saying, hey, you give us access to this resource for our to come in and be able to mine or exploit or do something or build something. It will and we will give you favorable terms, you know, but we saw what happened. Was it in um, Uganda where? They repossessed the entire, you know, airport there. Uh, I can't remember the name of the city. 
I don't know. It, uh, probably it was either outside Campolo or Entebbe or somewhere around there. It, but... Yeah, I, th- I think it was Entebbe, right? That was the that was the it, it was, was Entebbe. the uh, yeah it was yeah. Entebbe. So so they basically remade that whole airport, and then because they couldn't meet the loan repayment schedule, they then um, you know basically repossessed the entire thing, and now they're running it. I don't know how that works. It's not like um, they're going to be able to send Chinese paratroopers in from you know. Djibouti to to enforce it if if Ugandans basically kicked them out, but you know, I mean, is that something they're talking about in South Africa well, as far as kind well, of inviting? Chat, uh, Scott just said that because he was looking for an excuse to say Djibouti on here. Carry on. That's true. Well, I mean, you know, because you know what comes next, uh, uh, Joe. As soon as you mention Djibouti, you're also talking about Jamankini. So. Um, you know, I'm just saying. You know, wow. and, and those short, those short, the the, and you know, we're talking South Africa, so I can't believe we haven't talked about Rhodesian short shorts yet either. So we had this uh, conversation, Scott. I know, but you know, I, I was I, I was inter- interested in talking about the inner inner workings of uh, international relations in South Africa and the in the implication of China coming in with all their money. But you mean you know I can talk about stupid stuff too. By the way, Ron, I understand that uh, Sniper's Nest is way more fun than uh, than the council. I was hurt. I, heard, Ron. I, I, I was heard hurt. The, I heard that comment. <laughs> well, well, good. <clears throat> you know he. Yeah, I mean it was. Uh, it was it was well it was only an hour so you know i di- i didn't get exhausted that's true and, that's true and i di- and he didn't go over a map and he didn't he didn't ha- hurt my ears by by excruciatingly pronouncing uh ukrainian names it was it was a godsend god tell me about it, you, I, it nobody is hurt more by the, my pronunciation of ukrainian names than i am uh you know if and only yet, we had persist. a war in South Africa, I feel like I would be do much better with the South African names. I mean, even some of these tribal names are easier to pronounce than than. I feel you like know, has personally extended the war in Ukraine by mispronouncing place names. I think you're probably right. Oh Jesus, have you, I, I, Gideon? Have you have have you spent any time reading the names off of a map in uh, in uh, Ukraine? I recommend you give it a shot. You'll get yeah, up after about five here, different place names here. Uh, to, here, this is a good one, Gideon. What is this? Oh, you gotta, you gotta. What? He can't see it probably. Well, let me, let me find a better way to do that. So, is that phonetic, or is that just the closest to English we we can? That's can that's it? the anglicized version. So yeah. the, the 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 version above is in Cyril. Well, not Cyrillic, whatever the Ukrainian the Ukrainian is. languages. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, is that Zaporizhia or something like that? See, see, people. Yeah, yeah, right. See, we that's do a the best one. we can. It's Indianapolis. See, it, it, it's 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 taken it's taken me like a month to get it to get that one, and I'm still not perfect on it. So, anyway, all right. No, it's not map time, Greg. All right. So anyway, back to the question at hand. The um. Oh, by the way, Sniper's Nest, by the way, uh, Joe and Ron were both on. Uh, recommend you guys, if, you, if you're not checking out Sniper's Nest, very good show. Uh, too, a little too fed posty for me, but, uh, you know, Sniper knows that. And, you know, I dropped in in the chat for a little bit and, and was able to listen in. So it, it's all good fun when the guys are able to get over there. 
It gets to, you guys get to talk about the domestic politics, which uh, we don't do so much here on this show. So, um, all right. So back to South Africa, back to China. What? So what is? I mean, just from your kind of understanding, what's the the potential for China coming in and, and doing more in South Africa? So there's this 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 weird foreign relations dilemma we have in the sense that we are well not we let me rephrase that the governing party the ANC is traditionally very 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 close to Russia very very close to Cuba and very very close to China but at the same time they're also WEF globalists who are simultaneously trying to carry favor with with all four of these entities the most important being Russia, China, and the WF globalists. Uh, if, if that's even like, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory, but I find that's a nice catch-all term for this weird sort of Western hegemony that doesn't quite, uh, a bit amorphous blob of it, and that likes giving money to third world countries to implement really terrible ideas that will never, ever work there, but it exactly. makes someone feel better about it. Um, and this precarious balance of satisfying all three different schools really came to a head with our response to the war in Ukraine because um, everyone to the West demanded we condemn it, knowing full well that due to the close relations between us and the more Eastern Bloc side of things, that was probably not going to happen. And to this day, the ANC hasn't quite figured out what to do about Ukraine. They, they just kind of ignore it exists. They only talk about it if it is forced upon them as a topic, but they avoid it like they avoid uh, not stealing your taxes. <laughs> That's the best illustration for what our foreign policy is. is we, we're willing to talk to anyone who will give us money and not ask too many questions about what we do with it. I find the, the close association with Cuba ironic, uh, given the length and breadth of the uh, of the border war and how many Cubans died at the hands of South Africans in that. Well, I, I would I mean, I'll let you answer that, Gideon, but I would imagine just from off the top of my head, that's the, the rebels who were a part of that uh, border war are now are now well, members yeah. of the government. <laughs> well, th that's that's the thing. And. The interesting thing about it, we're taking aid money that we're getting from Western governments and we're channeling it to Cuba in, in the shape of, of gifts we give them. I mean, we would we would pay them a ridiculous amount of money so they could send maybe 300 Cuban slaves here to act like doctors in our public hospitals. They can't speak a word of English. They have absolutely no idea what they're busy doing. Um, but they're here as part of as part of the foreign exchange program, as in. They send us foreign people and we send them foreign money. And this is why we actually have pressing issues domestically about kids in the Eastern Cape province dying from starvation. The first instances of child malnutrition we've seen in South Africa since like the, in forever. Um, but we're sending a couple of million dollars to Cuba for no good reason. And I mean, to be honest, the relationship that these guys had was with Fidel and he's dead now. It has been for a while. So it really does make no sense. We, it's a schizophrenic political situation. Um, I think my best summary is we're governed by incompetent, malicious imbeciles. And 
that's really the long and the short of it. Well, that's my crazy. God, that I sounds mean... familiar. Huh. <laughs> well, I, I the everything he said so far about almost all of this sounds like it's it's you a, know, it's a weird is... mirror world. Yeah, yeah. What's funny is, is I said the same thing um, over the weekend on our video, and 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 Alex, uh, Alex P, who's uh, who sent us a bunch of messages in our chat. He's a former South African member of Parliament uh, who follows me. Uh, been follow we, we've been friends for quite a while. Uh, he says the same thing: is that South Africa is sort of the the test lab for some of the World Economic Forum ideas and some of the other um, globalist ideas that come up because there's free money involved, right? And the and uh, and the ANC government there is really kind of wanting some of that free money, and that's where you end up with a lot of these issues. Uh, what do you think about that thought? I think that's perfect summary of it. Um, it explains our obsession with ideas that make no sense, uh, whether it's in South African context, whether it's um, we're obsessed with climate change all of a sudden. Our entire power grid is essentially on the brink of grid collapse. Oh, did I mention that earlier? No, I don't think I did. So we've we, we have rolling we've had rolling blackouts since two thousand and eight, and the situation has has drastically worsened to the point now where there are outright talks of you know we're hovering on the brink of a total grid collapse, and I don't know how long it would, would take them to get the power grid back up and running in the event of that happening. So, and most of our power grid is coal powered. We we have no alternatives for it. The, the coal is cheap. We have cleaner burning coal power plants now than we've ever had in history. Um, it really is for a country like us that that can't keep the lights on even after our major industries have collapsed and and there is no very few major power users still individual power users still left. We can't really afford a green agenda at all like talking about emissions regulations is just insanity here i mean it's uh, it, it's um i don't have a suitable analogy for how crazy it is yet yet we are we're having a significant debate about that i'm, I'm pretty sure that some of the money in our infrastructure bill is earmarked for you so so you know that's always yeah, good well it's exactly yeah, this so we're talking about a, a digital currency in a country where probably close to 60% of the population doesn't even have anything remotely resembling regular internet connectivity, but we want them to use the digital currency. It's, it's, it's crazy, crazy stuff. So anti-commie for $5 says snipers and S ain't fed posting unless I'm on it still acting for Ron's former colleagues to collect their SGLI coming for me. I think he means waiting, but <laughs> come on now, anti-commie. <clears throat> As they uh, as they said in the original True Grit, pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man there, anti commie. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, so this is interesting, right? So we, you know, we've been focusing on the security dilemma in South Africa, but I mean, it sounds like you guys have some non-security related dilemmas. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's poverty or whether it's you know the failing infrastructure i mean if the lights go out tomorrow for you guys i mean you the the, the bad thing about a grid collapse is that it tends to take a lot of a, a lot of the grid with it and so it it you know it's not just some oh we have to fix out this this fuse someplace and flip, flip the switch back on 
Um, and my other question is, is that you said it was coal power for the most part. Do you guys mine coal uh, domestically? Big time. It's a humongous industry. And uh, it's also because of, of its size and how much money it generates, it's also heavily politicized. And that heavily politicization of the industry with, uh, you know, politically connected individuals becoming involved in very senior or influential positions uh, in that industry means that sometimes a lot of dodgy stuff happens and a lot of failure occurs. And then you have coal that doesn't go where it's supposed to go, end up where it needs to be. And I mean, it's, it's one, I've never heard of a country that made an excuse like this, but when we hit major massive rolling blackouts end of last year, we were told by the head executives of the, because our, our only power company is a state owned power provider called ESCOM. Um, which uh, is an electricity supply corporation of South Africa, essentially. So it's all government-owned. And he said, no, the reason why we're having these, these blackouts is due to the heavy rains that came through, the coal got wet. I, I'm not even kidding. So the coal got wet because it rained, so we can't have electricity. Uh, it's, it's clown world. Um, if, if I had to unpack all the dysfunctional nonsense of this country, we'd be here all day, I promise you. There's... Think of a sector I can <laughs> explain a crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if, I, clearly they don't understand how coal works. It's not like firewood. But uh, but even if you took firewood, wet firewood, and threw it in a blazing furnace, let me tell you, it, it'll catch fire. It may take a second or two, but it'll catch fire. Um, all right, so let's look over here. Uh, actually, let me open it up to the council here. I mean, what do you guys... I mean, you guys have all been listening for a while. Even Ron coming in a little on the on the the latter half. What do you guys think? What do you what questions would you have? Um. Well, I know that the chat wants to know your feelings on Elon Musk. Oh yeah, that's right. And big so, news with well, him today. Yeah, I was just going to say let's let's fill in the big news just in case anybody hasn't heard it. Um, essentially, what what it looks like happened is the offer. Uh, between the offer and and the threat of legal action, uh, and then proving that he secured the funds, they don't really have any option but to take it. Like they can either take it and not get sued and make a bunch of money, or not take it and have everybody sell out from underneath them and get sued. So, so the long and short of it is, is Elon's offer is going through. So pertaining the man himself, like I obviously don't know him personally. I, <laughs> I have a an inherent and possibly unhealthy distrust of almost every single public figure. I resist heavily on placing anyone on a pedestal and, and seeing them as some sort of messianic person who's going to come and sweep in from the, the mountains and save us from ourselves or somebody else. So I don't actually know what Elon's plan is. But I like this. I like the fact that it's causing so much unhappiness amongst a, a segment of society I despise. So I'm not going to cry about it. I think it's 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 great. It's wonderful, and I hope great things happen. And I hope there is a I hope there's an element of freedom loving, sort of old school classical liberal in Elon, and he just wants to uh, dunk on the lefties and leave the rest of us alone. But yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah, not a big fan of writing, too. Uh, I feel the same way, and I figured you probably did, but just wanted to get it out there. 
Uh, it, I'm not going to take his microchip in my brain. Let me just put that. <laughs> I think uh, Lafayette um, Lee, I think, um, had a comment and I, I, on Twitter I, I, about Elon, and, and and my comment was, I don't necessarily expect him to be quote a savior, conservative stalwart, but any change of Twitter, Twitter corporate culture is welcome. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are kind of. You know, liking that, I guess. Um, I, I, I guess I'd, I, I, I have to say I don't really trust him either. Um, but you know, you know, good on him. Be careful what you wish for; you may get it. Exactly. You know, the interesting thing is, is I think um, when we allow our self-interest to be our guide, tend we tend to make better decisions than when we try to do it for altruistic reasons. Um, and the, you know, somebody said, well, oh, Elon doesn't care about Liberty. He just cares about his own self-interest. Well, if he applies his self-interest to everybody else, the, the exact same way he applies it to himself, then I think I'm okay with that. You know, if that's all we get, um, because, you know, he wants freedom of speech, not because he wants, you know, me to have freedom of speech, but because he wants to have freedom of speech. I, I, I'm kind of interested, too bad stands on, but I'm, I'm kind of interested if he's going to turn this into you know, a, a great uh, money-making endeavor. I mean, my understanding is Twitter really hasn't made a ton of money. And it, as, a, as an investment from a guy of his stature, it's really kind of odd. I mean, I, I don't know if he's going to turn this into a, a huge win you know, for his making money. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 well, I just he... re, re, hold a second, Watcher. I just want to address this heresy in the chat. Um, you know, Andy Connie for two dollars says Scott going full Ayn Rand, uh, come to the dork side. Uh, I mean, come on, all every every good libertarian minded person has uh, has read uh, those books and has listened to the what is it the the hundred and twenty page soliloquy that uh, John Galt did in that radio room or whatever on that mm. radio program. Uh, so yeah, I have a lot of respect for that stuff, but I am not an objectivist <laughs> and I'm not a libertarian either. I, I am libertarian leaning conservative. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Watcher. I so rudely interrupted you. Oh, it's okay. I, but I did, it, it's not a big deal, but I did lose my train of thought. It was something about, um, well, I just want to know what Charlie's Theron's phone number is. Let's yeah. talk about a real yeah, South Gideon. African. Come on now, that's that's something <clears throat> that inquiring minds want to know. That's the intel we need. Well, well we've got a CIA guy here. I mean, <laughs> no, no. You, see, you have me confused with NSA, and that's you know, I'm asking for a phone number, not her address. Well, so if you any know, NSA I, people are watching. That's the cue right there. <laughs> Gideon, I will ask you, I mean, there is a, this is completely off the topic. Uh, I mean, I guess it's on the South African topic, but what, how is it that, that there is an uncommonly number of, of incredibly hot women in South Africa? I think it's something in the water and a lot of them come from Bloemfontein. At least That's... they used to, I don't know if they still do, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's I... definitely I don't know I'm if it's genetic. No to schedule travel to to, to Bloemfontein. Well, you know, Mike has his ex. I also had an ex from uh, Bloemfontein. Yes, she was 
very attractive. So um, yeah, it's a it's a just it's just kind of funny how 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 you get this this interesting uh, uh, line of beautiful women coming out of uh, South Africa. I, I feel I feel so behind everything. I'm I'm still on my starter wife. Watcher, what are you doing? Hey, You're these are these, these are all bikinis. We're fine. This <laughs> is this is Sports Illustrated. This I, is I Sports Illustrated, it. essentially. Uh, th this is the swimsuit edition. That's all. Mm -hmm. But all South African women. But this is a the, family show. Is wait, it? No. 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 <laughs> Joe's like, wait a second. Don't don't move it off that. I, I am shocked. Shocked. I am going to register my complaint with the management of this company, Watcher, when I get a chance. Okay. Um, I'm shocked that Watcher didn't Photoshop the uh, the Zardoz picture into that. I, well, I I didn't have enough time. Antikami for two dollars says beautiful women like Hugh Laurie. <laughs> oh snap! It's, it's famine, Scott. It keeps them thin. Antikami must have a lot of money burning a hole in his pocket. Well, he's, hey, he's he just respectful of our us. We're okay with it. All right. Uh, well, you know, I'm, so still, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting to see our health care plan here. So, you know, okay, we've so... been, well, Gideon, we've been focused, at, we focused an inordinate amount of time on, on the Ukraine situation here on this channel, because, you know, we're all about future conflict and, you know, Russia, Russia's conflict today is definitely going to be conflict tomorrow and China is waiting in the wings and we've got all these other countries. So just give me your kind of takes on what do you think? Uh, what do you think's out there waiting in the wings? It doesn't have to necessarily be Africa related, but just kind of you know, just from your your read of the news. So I speak under heavy correction here, but last I heard, Africa was the new hotbed of Islamic ah, yes. terrorism, and I actually have close personal, personal friends, friends that do, that do. Um, military security contracting in Africa, specifically West Africa. We're talking about. Uh, Mali, Chad, those sorts of places. And especially the, the situation in Nigeria from last I heard was on the brink of collapsing entirely. Um, what would happen, silly things like the government would send conscripts and uh, they all actual, get killed. Yeah, they would send troops out, not properly supply them with zero air support into the middle of, of Isla Islamist held territory and not rotate them out ever. They keep the guys there for three years. So you can imagine that morale is, is non-existent. And then they wonder how these bases are getting completely overrun and, and th things are going s south horribly. So I'm not 100% sure. I think Ron wanted to add something there. Yeah, just real quick, Ron, before you start, Greg Bailada uh, says for, for $5, it's all those sweet, sweet, rare earth elements streaming down into the orange land. <laughs> Talking about the women, of course. Um, go ahead, Ron. Well, I, I have a question. It, it sort of relates to the uh, the rise of Islamic terrorism. Is one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things um, that's always discussed here in, in North America is that... Um, except for some countries like Egypt, most of the 99% of the borders in Africa, the continent of Africa were established by the colonial powers and they, they cut over tribal lines and, and 
economic interest lines and things like that. So, you know, we there's always been the expectation of a of a massive realignment of uh, of borders and countries and uh, in Africa. I mean, what's what's the feeling like in there on the continent of Africa on this? So I think the reason why the feelings aren't stronger is for the most part, borders in South Africa are technicalities rather than actual enforceable lines. Um, there's so much cross-border movement of people and goods. Um, the only reason they are regulated is because governments like extracting taxes from things that yeah. come, come through their territory. The reason why there isn't a massive, almost continent-wide conversation about changing borders or, or, or realigning things, no matter how pan-Africanist a politician claims to be, if he's sitting in a position of power or has the capacity to possibly be in a position of power in the near future, in their lifetime, they're not interested in changing or messing with the status quo. You keep those colonial borders the way they are because you're going to be running the show there soon or you're presently running it and you're extracting a whole bunch of wealth out of it or from foreign funders who are, who are keeping uh, your government propped up for, for political reasons because geopolitics demands it and you're a convenient puppet president, you don't care. So on grassroots level, from people way down at the bottom who should care about it the most, they tend not to because you're not... You don't, you're not too fussed about a boundary that doesn't directly inconvenience you. And if you're sitting higher up uh, and you benefit from the boundary's existence, you're not going to be too fussed about changing it either. So it's, it's an interesting conundrum because you'd think, you know, we're sitting 60 years past when the first uh, African states gained their independence and nothing has changed border-wise on this continent. It's still almost exactly the same as it's always been well except for the creation of eritrea they, they carved that out of ethiopia i guess and south so, sudan yeah south, south sudan, sudan thank you so it, yeah. but then those were those were obviously very um, ethnical um, driven uh, separations and uh, independence movements but I, I i guess what i was leading up to is i, I can see the islamic movements um you know the al-qaeda Al in um in Iraq and the Islamic movement in Iraq or not Iraq, excuse me, uh, North Africa, um, uh, exploiting the fissures, even if they're small fissures within these countries like Mali and Chad and Niger and, and elsewhere, and even looking to exploit them in, in your country, um, obviously Kenya, Somalia, Mozambique, Tanzania. So Nigeria. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is if we look at the African continent, right? So we've got, um, like, let's just start at Somalia because we all know where that's at, right? So Somalia is still in disarray, right? I mean, you know, Boko Haram is still causing a lot of trouble there. They're also causing trouble in, uh, uh, you know, Ethiopia uh, going, going, uh, I mean, we've got all that. What, what is, what's, I can't even, I don't even know what to call the conflict in Ethiopia. That's um, continuing to go on. Uh, moving counterclockwise around the, I mean, Sudan, of course, is never, uh, never far from trouble. Uh, Egypt has got, uh, it's, it's, you know, Bigfoot well, we... all over Libya. Libya is essentially uh, torn in half. Uh, moving around Algeria, Morocco look downright, and Tunisia look downright peaceful these days. 
Um, and then we go down to Malia, uh, to Mali, Malia, Mali. Uh, and then, you know, that's, you know, that place is shit out of luck. I mean, uh, you know, they've got, you were talking about, you've got friends that are doing contracting there. Then they've got the Wagner group, anywhere the Wagner group is in charge of the security, you know, uh, good times are ahead. Um, and then, <laughs> and then you've got the, the perennial, uh, you know, stomping grounds of, I mean, actually Liberia and Sierra Leone have actually been fairly quiet these last few years. Um, Although but, those are probably the countries U.S. Marines have done the most non-combatant <laughs> combatant evacuations in over time. Yeah, didn't you? <laughs> you were you were part of one experience. of those, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I know this from personal experience. Well, they've run out of child soldiers, so they have to replenish. Oh, that's true. Well, well yeah, I hear Ukraine a... has a few. Oh. <laughs> You know, Nigeria, like you said, is on the verge of collapse. But the sad thing is, is Nigeria, Nigeria for so long was like the hope of Africa because of all the oil. And, you know, they you know, just, you know, Lagos was supposed to be this, you know, you know, booming metropol metropolis that oh would, God. you know, I know. I thought right? Nigeria it's, was Wakanda. I'm not. Am I, am I confusing those? No, yes. I mean, that's it's somewhere in there. Don't don't worry about it, Joe. You don't know what you're talking about, the white men. So the, the right. U.S. Embassy in Lagos, they have a, a balcony overlooking the uh, the river that flows alongside through Lagos into the uh, whatever the the body of water, the Atlantic Ocean there, but the Gulf. And uh, the um, at, at cocktail hour, <clears throat> they would do uh, floater races. They would they would take bets on the different bodies floating down the uh, down the river to see which one would uh, get to whatever the finish line was. I, I mean that's. Yeah, so don't tell me about it. Lagos is a thriving metropolis. I mean, but you know, but but the point was is they thought that it could be because of the uh, just the oil money. But of course, it never was going to be, as you have pointed out so so well. Um, I mean, and then it just you know, and we already talked about Mozambique. I think if I remember correctly, Zimbabwe is also having trouble with uh, uh, ISIS, uh, and I don't know about uh, some of the other uh, Malawi and 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 Zambia if they're if those are being affected as well so but the point is is that there's all these little pinpricks of insanity uh around the continent and you know I guess you could say fairly that well you know what what else is new right I mean you know this is Africa it's it's always a, a cycle of 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 conflict but I'm I'm just curious how you know China you know we we were talking about China I think it was a week ago how some of they're kind of starting to send less of their money overseas to go pay for all these uh, vanity projects for the Belt and Road Initiative because they're starting to think that they may need their money back home uh, especially if there's some sort of a, a you know, conflict. And then Russia, of course, is, you know, balls deep in their conflict with Ukraine and potentially, you know, all of NATO, if you if you listen to Russian media. Um, so I'm just kind of I'm just kind of curious how all these these kind of I think it goes back to Joe, your point where World War Three won't be one big giant, you know, uh, clash of cultures. It will be a lot right. of small you know, small wars around small the world. Small civil wars, yeah. Yep. Anticommy for two dollars says, "Go, go figure. Money doesn't create culture. No, it doesn't." Um, Gideon, I just wanted to, you know, 
to open the floor to you. If there's, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I, I think, you know, I've pretty much kind of come to the end of my questions. Um, I, we could always go into more detail on, on South Africa, but I know you're going to do a interview with Joe and I don't want to take any, 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 any more of the thunder that I may have stolen. Um, Joe, I think, you know, the idea of some of those points that, uh, Alex brought up, you, you know, bringing those up with him, I think are good because that really gets into some of the nuts and bolts of, potential conflict, you know, yep, and, and Fisher dividing lines and things like that. So why don't you tell the people about uh, what you guys are going to do uh, on your channel? Okay. Well, uh, I, I think that Gideon has agreed and we're going to have to work out the details, but I think what we're going to do is a more in-depth uh, dive into, into how the South African example can be applied here and how preparedness, like we talked about earlier in the show, preparedness of your neighborhood group and those around you, can get you ahead for times that are coming. And South Africa is is, is the perfect example and, and, the, and the perfect real case study we can use. So we're going to kind of talk about that kind of stuff through, and that'll be over on the Tactical Wisdom channel. Um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. All right, so we've got 92 people watching live. Um, go ahead, Gideon. You can just interrupt Scott. I, he, I know he talked over you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm, sorry, just, uh, I'm just saying I'm in. So definitely, definitely, Joe. We'll, we'll do. All right. Well, we'll talk we'll after this about finalizing that. So, okay. Yeah, ahead, I, 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 I'm really looking forward to that interview. I mean, because uh, getting you've got a very interesting point of view, and I, I, I think a lot of people in the chat have kind of pointed out that you're, you're plain spoken, uh, and that doesn't, uh, you know, a lot of times we have people who have saws they want to kind of. Uh, uh, kind of kind of always talk to, but you seem to cut through a lot of the bullshit, especially when it comes to just the reality of, of, of life on the ground. Um, you know, there's always kind of like what you were saying with the West, with the media there, because they're Western owned, that they always want to interject Western politics into, you know, into the, you know, the lens of the news, you know, uh, there in South Africa. But it's, it's interesting because it's the exact opposite you know everything that comes out of South Africa, they want you to view through the lens of the of Western kind of. Uh, so we, you know, we get a very filtered view uh, of what comes out of South Africa. That's why I know, like guys like me and Joe, who were following what happened last year, we turned to the internet because that was the only place you could really get those good kind of unvarnished, you know, points of view. And and definitely, you're another voice. Um, so so you know we. We we really uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and talking with us today. You you uh, got to tell them about your patch too before you go. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll definitely tell the guys about the patch. But I really appreciate the opportunity um, to speak to you guys. And to be honest, I've learned equally a heck of a lot from everything from personal preparedness to the the very. I'd say uncon unconventional, and I mean that in a good way, because convention is filtered, it's scripted, and it's mostly dishonest. The unconventional take on current conflicts and situations worldwide, I have to say thanks to Joe and everyone else that that's that that you've introduced me to on that that Twitter space to to get real opinions from. Because lots of the time I read stuff in the in the corporate media and I go, I really vehemently disagree with this, but I can't articulate why. Um, there's just something in my gut feel that says this is a complete nonsense, but I don't have deeper insight to be able to explain to someone when they call me out and 
you know, why do why do I not want to believe the talking head uh, on the TV screen? So equally thanks to that, and um, the patch the patch um, on my Twitter banner, we it's a joke patch. We had to come up with a very 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 fancy acronym uh, that spells PUS P O E S, and that is Afrikaans for. Um, Female genitalia and the the, the pejorative <laughs> term. I don't know if I'm allowed the, to. Say it. The <laughs> word that really makes the censors' heads pop off. Like I don't know why it's that one that they don't like, but that is the one that they just really don't like. Yeah. That's the one. You know, you know, Gideon. I'm on, I'm on your website, uh, looking at your T-shirts. You know, I think you missed a trick. Your uh, 1873 edition shirt. You know, you got a, like the guy, the Zulu warrior or whatever with the uh, M4 over his shoulder. Man, it should have been like a, like a FAL, you know. So I'll, I'll speak to my designer uh, to, to actually, we need to bring out a new edition of that. And what makes me cringe about my online shop is that I modeled my own T-shirts. And I, I did notice that. that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it was an awful decision, but I was kind of desperate. So <laughs> you, need to, you need to get one of those uh, hot, fine South African women we were talking about. Well, you could always, you could always get Joe to model it. I mean, you, you right. do sell double XLs, right? <laughs> I, I do. I sell triple XLs. That was when I was still kind of skinny Austin as well. Got to stick up for my buddy Mike. Come on, there, Joe. <laughs> Just waiting Holy for my God. shot. My man. The Air, the Air Force has weighed in. So if, if yeah. I send you a shirt, Joe, would you model it in shorts? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like this guy. I do. Yeah. Yeah. do, Brute. That's what I like. Is, is I the international flavor. You know, that. just just for that, Gideon, I'm going to add you to our uh, our Twitter uh, DM chat for sure. I really like that. Now 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 it's taking root in South Africa. <laughs> it's an international I, I, movement. You know, well just done. just well for done. that, Gideon, I've got something for you. So you, we'll invite you if you want to come. We've got a little private secret clubhouse where our viewers come and torment us with amazing things. Uh, they left us this in the Joe Dolio cargo shirt appreciation station. I think you'll I think you'll appreciate. Uh, oh God, not this again. Yes. <laughs> you know how much counseling I've had to go through already for this. I don't know why I deserve this, but man. Well, Arm Corgi says cargo shirt union just went international. Chell Chell says thongs or nah. And listen, as far as a two XL, these shoulders aren't getting any less broad, so knock it off. All right, that's why I went. <laughs> Oh, well, the, the camera makes you look uh, robust. Hey, if you want to step on the mat and spar, we'll see how robust I am. Yeah, from, from, <laughs> I'll, I'll robust you from 500 meters. No worries, dude. Um, all right. So as you can tell, Gideon, we've got a we've got a spirited group of guys here that, uh, you know, if you ever yeah. feel like you need a if you ever feel like you need a. a a word on what's going on in the world feel free to to give our channel a listen it's a it's a it's fun people tell me i you know i'm i'm on here so it's hard for me to to be a judge i i think uh i'm i'm pretty stupid so i feel like everything i do is just a little bit better than than me because i'm surrounded by uh, smart and good-looking men um 
and you know, I just glom off of all their intelligence. So, um, but that being said, uh, I am unbreaded, so that's that's the important part. On paper, unbreaded. Down. That I'm definitely in. Thank you. The yeah, invitation accepted. Would love to. Would be would be an honor. Would be very. Uh, cool. and, and if there's ever anything you want to talk about, you know, you've got a an open seat here, man. You just let us know. Uh, and you know, if there's, you know, if some stuff starts to to boil up, and 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 there's some uh, information that you want to pass on to this to this audience, we'd be more than happy to have you back. And I'm looking forward to your. Uh, to your interview and you know this shirt man i tell you if you know it uh you know i think it's a cool it's a cool design i personally i i like this one this one i like that design you like that's that good. one yeah yeah that's yeah, the, the the anglo boer war one yeah that's actually the more popular one of the two so, so what's your inspiration for both designs so I actually just said to to the guy who who made these designs, I said, you know, I, I want two things that that is going to both appeal to people as well as upset the people I want to upset with it. And I said, you know, g giving a Zulu guy an AR-15 instead of an Asahai is definitely going to, you know, the, the stabbing spear they, they traditionally carry is mm -hmm. definitely going to uh, set the tone in a, in a different way. And I definitely wanted one um, to, because then I sold that one and I had a whole bunch of Afrikaans people get up in my space and like, why don't we have one? Why do you only give the Zulus a shirt and we don't have one? And I said, okay, fine, fine. I'll make, I'll make you one too. And that was just how it went. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, if, if people are telling or complaining to you, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're on target. So exactly. And if they complain about the right thing, so I'm, I'm not going to, you know, refuse, refuse the request. Um, okay. So, uh, definitely we're going to put, uh, all your links down in the description. So if you are, if you're listening now, make sure you check out his stuff. But if you're listening on the recording, all that stuff will be down in the description. Um, uh, is there anything else you want to shout out or you were talking about a, uh, a charity. We can, we can link that as well. Uh, what, um, what's that all about? So, uh, this is DRSA, dear South Africa. So it's, it's, it's a nonprofit organization and uh, it prim it's primarily focused on one thing only, and it's to get the public uh, citizens a say in, in uh, the process of writing laws. So whenever there's a legislative amendment or something stupid like this proposed climate change bill, what happens is people click on that, um, they have their say whether they agree or disagree with it. There's a small summary of what it means because most people don't write read government gazettes when they publish on a friday and go through like 700 pages of legalese nonsense it's it's it'll melt your brain so we do that we summarize the key points and then people can decide whether they agree or disagree with it and the cool thing is uh we are working on a way to allow people overseas to have a say in it as well um because we will say you know submission is a submission right so that's kind of the work we do and it's it keeps it keeps i'm not going to say it keeps government honest but it makes them a little bit harder to be dishonest and this is through this platform that last year when they tried banning self-defense as a reason to own and carry a gun in south africa 
they had to put that amendment out for public comment and they pulled it because about 99% of the couple of hundred thousand comments they got in the space of three weeks all outright rejected it. And the one thing about the government is they do respond to pressure and they said, you know what, this is, this is political suicide. Uh, there's too much, how shall we say, resistance and opposition to this. Let's put this gun control legislation on the back burner and forget about it. So it does at least have a meaningful impact. And that's, that's what that's all about. Mm. All right. Well, we'll definitely put that link in the description as well. Um, thank you for coming on, man. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, Joe, tacticalwisdom.com. What, uh, what's the next topic that we're, that we're talking about this week? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Cause I've got, I've got two kind of in the works. Um, one is, uh, one is just a recap of, of, of the summer of love and, and some of the escalating things that are, that are going on. Um, but another one is, uh, is about just some some general preparedness topics and and preparations you need to be making right now. So I'm trying to decide which one should go first. Probably the preparations one, and then we'll get back to talking about how the the summer of love is expanding. The summer of love is expanding. It, it <laughs> is lots of love it's... this summer. Lots of love. Well, and hopefully we'll have a a fairly free speech Twitter platform that we can uh, talk about it on. And just to tie that into something, we we actually do cover some of what Joe's talking about in in uh, our first episode of uh, a Tactical Wisdom uh, YouTube channel when we break down that that shooting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And we have uh, some other videos we're going to be putting out on our on our YouTube channel of uh, video essays where we take some of the articles and kind of recap them with video. So good stuff. Well, you got three hundred ninety five subscribers right now. Yes, yeah. sir. Hey, let's see if we can't get him over 400 real quick. There's 82 of you in the tra- chat, and I guarantee you're not all subscribed to Joe's uh, YouTube channel. So let's, if you can drop the link in the uh, in the chat real quick, then they can jump on over there and uh, and then give his uh, give him a like there or a subscribe rather. There he is. So Watcher just put uh, Joe's uh, page in the uh, chat there. So go on over there, give him a follow or a subscribe if you haven't done it already. And then uh, let's see if we can't get him over 400. All right. Ron, where can the folks find you? Well, Watcher's showing it right now. Or you can go to my website, ronmoller.com. <clears throat> I'm running for the state Senate here in western South Dakota. My district is uh, centered around the... The, the western town of Deadwood, um, made famous by some cheesy HBO miniseries, uh, whatever. And um, just to answer the question, wh- why did I uh, decide to run for office and not enjoy my retirement is, look, if, if you're happy with the way things are going in your country, our country, then great. Then then sit there and, and eat your Fritos and, and drink your hard seltzer and, and watch whatever you watch on the TV. But if you're, if you are upset, don't be a Twitter warrior. Don't be a keyboard warrior. Get out of the basement, get out from behind your keyboard and get involved in your community. Go to the city council meetings, go to the school board meetings, go to the county commission meetings. And if you don't like what you're hearing and the people that got elected into office, 
than run for the office. And that's where I was. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because there ain't going to be no white knight, no no cavalry platoon troop coming over the horizon, blowing bugles to save us. We have to save ourselves. And it's up to y'all. So join me, America first. Let's put our country first. Let's take care of ourselves. And then we can worry about the rest of the world. Thank you. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, uh, Nolan Create for $10 says, found you through Dolio. Great conversation. Looking forward to more. Hey, well, we, we appreciate you being here. And uh, definitely we look forward to bringing interesting guests and interesting topics uh, to the front, especially stuff that, that people aren't talking about. Uh, you know, Gideon, is as important as we think uh, what you guys went through is last year and what you're facing, you know, in the in the months and years to come. Uh, and the also the the kind of double importance of the example of preparation and why what you know the preparations that you guys did made it you're able to do be successful in this in the in the mutual aid um, all that stuff is so important to the to people in America right now because I mean you you probably saw the news and what we went through in the summer of 2020 uh, and that was as that was a fairly manufactured and and an under generally good economic circumstances. Um, if this inflation keeps going, uh, I tell you, Joe. I mean, what are our odds, man? I mean, it's people are going to be riding in the street, but the problem is going to yeah. be over the lack of purchasing power on the dollar, not because of some dumb police uh, interaction. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. That's the direction we're headed. <clears throat> We have a ten dollar, ten dollar super chat. We got another one. The oh, never mind. Sorry. All right, yeah. Um, let's see. All right, so Mike, talk us talk to talk to us about the uh, the warlock. Uh, I was chastised last time. I didn't. I don't sufficiently uh, talk great about myself, but. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll quote something. Uh, a guy DM'd me. Um, apparently, he's been kicked off Twitter. But his quote is, you're a talented writer. I couldn't put the book down. I'll be buying more of your books. And, and that, more than anything, really made me, I guess, feel pretty good. Um, nice. And it was signed, Love Mom. <laughs> well, uh, no, <laughs> not here anymore. Um that, that's always nice to hear. It's, it's not like I'm doing this to validate anything. Um, but uh, I, I guess I do think I'm a, a decent writer as far as writing goes. Um, the the subject matter is pretty near and dear to the channel because it's, you know, we cover these sort of things. Um, so, you know, clearly there's a consistency there, you know, between what we do on the channel. If you're interested in what we talk about, you know, you, you probably like my books. Um, but there, there's a bunch, there's five and, and, and Gideon, I'm hoping that, uh, you, you're going to be the, uh, not airhead. What's the word I want? Uh, well, I can be the airhead if you be, need one, but beachhead. Uh, I'm, I'm naturally beachhead. The beachhead, the beachhead. I mean, the beachhead. Be, beachhead is the more, I mean, there is such a thing as an airhead, but, um, the beachhead, uh, down there in, in South Africa. And I, and I wanted to ask you, um, I never did make it there. Um, but it is someplace I wouldn't mind going. Uh, do you recommend Cape Town? Do you recommend Pretoria, Durban? I mean, wh where's the place to go that really is, you know, 
a good place to go. I can recommend quite a few. And if you're ever down here, I can certainly organize you a place to stay as well. And, and I, I'm not talking about a hole in the wall either, like a, mm. <laughs> a decent place to stay. The Cape Town is Cape Town. Um, I wouldn't waste my time in the city too much because it's it's just another it's just another big city. But mm. uh, the Winelands has a lot of history and a lot of natural beauty to see. And then as soon as you start heading east, down the uh, down around the coast, you had a small little town called Atmanus, and you go further and further east along the garden route. Um, there are so many interesting little spots of natural beauty mm. that, um, and I mean, there's good coffee, there's good Wi-Fi, there's good beer, there's good whiskey, there's good brandy, there's good whatever your poison happens to be, you'll find it. Um, but then, of course, if you're looking for that real African bush experience, you'll find that up north in um, uh, near Pretoria and and near Nelspruit near the Kruger National Park, and in the proper bushveld, it's an entirely different atmosphere, entirely different vibe on that side again. So, we, I mean, we we covered a great deal, and, and rightfully so, of the strife, you know, that that's in South Africa. But I mentioned in the in the pre-show my ex is from durban south africa and you know she loved her country um and and always spoke of the great beauty of south africa uh you know so so it's a place that can be you know worth salvaging you know hopefully they'll get things sorted out in time uh but apparently you know at least from her and you see the pictures i mean it's a beautiful place it's a beautiful country. Well, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you guys have probably thought the same thing, but there's been so many countries that we've been to to meet interesting people uh, and and then shoot them um, that uh, <laughs> that are just beautiful. They're stunningly beautiful. I mean, like like Ron. I mean, ha have you seen mountains more beautiful than the Hindu Kush? I mean, I the Rockies are great. Uh, but there was just something, you know, like the mountains that would just keep on going uh, in into into the distance. I mean, you know, Afghanistan was a, such a beautiful country. And, and even, you know, the uh, green zones uh, between the Euphrates and the Tigris in Iraq was very beautiful. I mean, you know, and I I hate to see it. Durban's right there on the on the coast. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a beautiful as long as, you know, the city's not on fire. I'm sure that's a beautiful area, too. Well, that, that's the thing. Durban is is absolutely gorgeous, and especially to the north and to the south of it, um, outside of outside of the city. The the issue with South Africa, it's very beautiful. The problem is the people, and um, <laughs> more than the people, it's the problem is the government. Um, yeah, and it's politics. But I, I also believe this is worth solving, and I think a lot of people in the comments are like, "But why? Why am I still here?" You know, surely if I really wanted to, I would have been able to to bail and then, and, 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 uh, you know, set myself up somewhere else. The thing is, I have family that, that either won't leave or can't leave. And I have a thing, a strange, irrational attitude about it that, you know, I only have one life. Um, you only have a set amount of laps around the sun. And I'd like to spend them close to people who I actually care about. And maybe that's a stupid thing. I also don't like the opportunity, the, the concept of cool things are bad. So I'm going to, um, you know, rather run away and, and, and 
make a future somewhere else. Eventually, if everyone has that attitude, you stop running other places to run to. Um, yeah. And then what happens? You know, you you may have a better time right now, but what happens to your kids one day if if you don't take a stand at some point and try to change things? Well, there's something to be said for roots, right? I mean, as a as the father of military brats, I mean, I I kind of the one thing that I wish that I was able to give my kids that I could and is the our roots, um, you know, because every two years or so, you know, I was moving, uh, but you know, anyway, uh, watcher, what do we need to tell the people about? You know, I think the only thing I want to mention today is, Joe, we've we've, we've got another interview with Gideon coming up. Is that uh, tomorrow? I, I don't know. Well, we'll have to get with Gideon and figure out when it works best. But okay. I do yeah, have a gonna... hard stop coming up here in a minute or two. Okay, that's so. going to happen on the Tactical Wisdom channel. So go ahead over there and uh, give, us a, give us a follow. How, let's, how, let's... how are we looking? Did we get over 400? Let's refresh and find out. Oh, 399. One more, guys. Come on. One more. Just one. All right. Well, let's see. Um I, that'll be our show then today. Uh, we appreciate you guys. Uh, I'm sure, Joe, you'll be over 400 before you know it. Uh, Ron, thanks for coming in, even even late. Uh, Mike, oh, it's never a show without you. We appreciate you, brother. Uh, and Gideon, absolutely, uh, 100%. You know, you, you, you've been one of the best guests we've ever had. And, and you, uh, like I said, you've got a seat whenever you want to come back and and talk about things. If you want to talk about not South Africa, you know, that's cool too. Um, you know, we, we like smart people. So, uh, and, and of course, uh, last but not least, Watcher down there pushing the buttons, making the show happen. And I, I will add making it happen for Joe's channel too. So, uh, Hey, hey Joe, Joe, Great. I just, I just subscribe. So you can get off my ass now. <laughs> That is the perfect coda for uh, for our uh, show today. Uh, and hey, there we hey, go. All right. Thank you. All right. So for for all everybody on the council, I want to this. I'm Scott, and I appreciate you guys watching our show. Uh, definitely share uh, with your friends. That's the best marketing that we can do. Uh, give that like button a smash. You know, smash it like uh, Will Smith smashes people who uh, make fun of his wife. <laughs> And uh, definitely hit the bell for notifications because next time, you know, we have a cool guest, you're going to want to know about it. So um, <laughs> that's it for today. You guys have a good day and, and try to stay safe out there.